All right. How are we doing this morning? I want to say hi to all of you who are watching online, hopefully this morning, because you're on the last weekend of spring break and hopefully watching this as you're returning or before you return home. But for those of us who are here, we're glad you're here this morning. Hang out with us. A couple of real quick things that I just got to share with you that are coming up. The first is uh, our green shirts. All right. Everybody know who our green shirts are? Who are our green shirts? Genesis Kids. They are fantastic. We have great leaders, great people working Genesis Kids, and they have an amazing event scheduled for this coming Saturday, our Easter event. So families, this is uh, Genesis Kids is planted. It's for families of any size and shape. Uh, I know that our community group, we stuffed over 300 eggs, and we were one of at least six groups that did this. So there's a ton of Easter eggs. A lot of fun planned. You can find that by, there's a QR code in your bulletin every week. You just scan the QR code. It will open up all the event registration information. The second is for those of you who are kind of new to Genesis. We, we have what is called our gospel class, which is kind of our welcome to Genesis. This is who we are and how to get plugged in sort of experience. It's a five-week small group that is designed to, to walk you through our core beliefs and our mission, vision, and values as a church. And so uh, we're going to start a, a gospel class. We do it about twice a year. And so we're going to start one here in a couple weeks on April 2nd. Uh, we're going to start a new class. Actually, I guess that's next week, isn't it? So next week, we're going to start a gospel class. And we would love to have you be a part of it if you were new to Genesis. So you can also find that just uh, in the bulletin. Uh, there's information. You can uh, register for anything through the QR code or just by tearing off that green uh, perforated part and putting it in the offering plate uh, if you want to be part of those things or anything else that shows up on our calendar, all right? Um, I, I'd spent 20 plus years doing, hanging out with teenagers in churches. And one of the things I love to do is take them on mission trips. And we used to, uh, for a while, we were connected to this ministry that was East St. Louis, Illinois, uh, called the Christian Activity Center. They took a group of teenagers from a primarily Anglo, well, that's not right, a completely Anglo church. We walked into Christian Activity Center. And as we walked through this place, it was ministering in this African-American neighborhood. All over the walls, there were scenes from the Bible picturing Jesus and a lot of the events that if you grew up or you've spent time reading the Bible, reading the Gospels, you're familiar with the events. And these scenes look very much like the scenes in most Sunday school curriculum or most vacation Bible school stuff that you've ever seen with one major exception. In every picture, Jesus was black. And this freaked my kids out. They were so uncomfortable with this. They were, how dare they change Jesus and make Jesus look like this? Because we all know that Jesus looks like this. And, and how, you cannot mess with blue-eyed hippie Jesus. That's Jesus. We know this, right? Uh, this beautiful picture that was painted uh, by, by this guy back in the 1940s, uh, and, and his goal, uh, Walter, his name's Walt Warner Salmon. Uh, he was actually commissioned by Catholics and I think Baptists to create a picture for Sunday school curriculum. It became the most well-known image of Jesus. And now we have this picture, this image of Jesus in our mind that is, you know, a European blue-eyed white dude uh, kind of comes out of the hippie movement. It's kind of a wuss, to be honest with you. Like nobody looks at that picture of Jesus and goes, I'm afraid, I would be afraid to meet this guy in an alley, you know, I, I, I could take this guy, right? And nobody looks at this Jesus and gets nervous. He's just, you know, he's, he's gentle 
and lowly and wouldn't take on anybody. He just wants to give everybody a hug and feel good. And so, so my kids were freaked out. They were looking at these pictures going, how dare they change Jesus? And I had to push them into a room real quick, get the door closed, because I was afraid anybody would hear this going on who was in the center. They would be upset with us. And I got them in a room, and I started saying, okay, listen, we got to have a conversation about this, because the truth of the matter is the image you have of Jesus is of an image that looks like you. They have taken the stories of Jesus and created them around images that look like them. Are they wrong and we're right? And hear me, I'm, I'm not sure that either is wrong, as long as we have an understanding that that is not the true Jesus. The true Jesus does not look like this. We don't really know what he looked like, but he was Jewish. Let's start there. He was a Middle Eastern Jewish man who spent his whole life outside. Probably didn't have blue eyes, probably had dark eyes. Isaiah tells us that there was nothing about his appearance that would have singled him out, that would have made it so that people were drawn to him because of the way he looked. You know, these images with Jesus with the halos are just like, we are already starting down bad theology when we put a halo around Jesus. He was a dude, a Middle Eastern dude. But here's the thing about this Middle Eastern dude, this, this guy that we saw. First of all, he was a man. A Roman soldier looked at him across and goes, that's the man. He's the dude. I mean, this is, he was a man who actually inspired people, but he also angered everybody. He flipped tables like he walks into the temple and starts flipping tables like that. I cannot see that Jesus getting in and getting mad in the temple. And and it's just a reminder that it's important for us to be very careful with the attitudes and values we have about Jesus to make sure that we're getting them from the right place. I'm not saying it's wrong. Like if you have this picture, do not go home and burn it. Well, maybe you should, but that's a different question. But, but let's make sure the Jesus that we know and worship is the true Jesus who's revealed in Scripture. Albert Moeller, who's the president of Southern Seminary, said this, it is, not, it is not an overstatement to say that the entire Christian faith rests on the validity of Christ's person and work. The, the entire Christian faith rests on the validity of Christ's person, who he is, and his work. If we get his person and his work wrong, it means that, that like theology matters. Now it matters not just because we get up in the egghead, you know, deep ethereal stuff. It matters because the Jesus we end up with will either save us or he won't. And, and we need to be careful that we, we get our understanding of Jesus from the right source. It has nothing to do with how you image him in a painting. It's, it's making sure we know the true Jesus. And so uh, Kirk did a great job last week. And one of the things he references is that there are a lot of studies that are telling us that people who go to church, people who, who have faith in Jesus, actually don't believe the things that Christians have historically believed. That um, near half of people when asked, was Jesus God, are like, I don't know. Probably not. That, that is a denial of, of a, an essential of the Christian faith. And, and so we need to make sure that we're wrestling with this. And here's why this is, we, we, we're doing a series, a series that helps us understand the core truths 
that the Bible reveals that Christians have always believed about the person and work of Jesus. We wanna drive these truths deep into your minds, into your hearts, into your belief systems. We wanna have correct theology, but it's not just so that we have correct theology. The goal is to know Jesus, that, that at the center of this is the savior of the world, the God who became flesh, who dwelt among us, who's looking at every one of us going, I am here and I want to have a relationship with you. I want to know you. I want to be intimate with you. And we cannot know Jesus if we don't know Jesus. Our problem in our culture, our problem in our world is that we are probably more influenced by our culture and our own desires than we actually are by the scriptures. And we will shape Jesus to fit what we want him to be. We will not find the Jesus that is. And so we end up with, you know, uh, Ricky Bobby praying to the eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus. And his wife gets after him, how dare you pray to baby Jesus? He's like, that's the Jesus I like. If I want to pray to eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus, and her response is, you better get this prayer right because I want that Jesus to help us win tomorrow so we can be rich. That's her version of Jesus. And then we end up with Kyle Naughton, who's like, I like my Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it tells me he's formal, but he also knows how to party, Right? What I, what I fear in here, and I know what's going on in the world and what we want to make sure we, we are pushing against, is that our Jesus is often a made-up figment that combines our cultural attitudes and values. Because Jesus is super popular, even in our culture. He never ceased being popular. Just ask Kanye West, right? He goes from being Jesus to believing in Jesus to being Jesus just back and forth. A Jesus who's shaped by values and attitudes of the culture that is then mixed with the Jesus that I want. So he's more like the genie in the bottle in Aladdin. I am whatever you want me to be, right? Then he is the God who has made himself known in Scripture. And having the right Jesus matters. We, we noticed this yesterday, or, yeah, or Friday, was we were walking around Indianapolis, downtown Indianapolis, uh, my, Heidi and the girls, we went on a getaway for the weekend and we're walking through downtown and twice we passed Jehovah's Witnesses who are out there with their little stand and they're, come to us, we'll give you a Bible study. And, and I asked Heidi if I could do this. I didn't. Everything in me wanted to look at them and go, hey, I just want to let you know, Athanasius was right, Arius was wrong. Did you get that? Now here's my challenge. I'm not going to tell you what that means. I double dog dare you to go find it this week. But I will tell you that you have in the fourth century two people who, who were having a discussion that ends up at the Council of Nicaea about who the real Jesus is. And I am thankful this morning that Athanasius led the church to get it right and Arius was rejected as a heretic. And by the way, your Jehovah's Witness friends, they side with Arius. They did not believe what the Bible teaches about the core identity of Jesus. Now you're like, that's not fair. Do some homework. But what we want to do is we want to wrestle with this because if you end up with the wrong Jesus, you will end up with a Jesus who cannot save you. I love the eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus of Christmas, but that baby Jesus grew up to be a man and lived the perfect life that I should have lived. And if I don't have the whole Jesus, I cannot find whole salvation. 
And so last week, Kurt got us rolling. He told us that Jesus is God, and he would masterfully show us from the scriptures how the Bible shows us that there is one true and living God, and that Jesus is that God, and, and that, that Christ is fully divine, that, that not just any God, this is the God who spoke the world into existence. Jesus is that God. This is the God who sent the plagues to Egypt to rescue Israel. This is the God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. In fact, there's a point in the New Testament where Jesus in his conversation with some Jewish religious leaders is literally looking at them going, hey, you know the story of the burning bush? You remember the the voice that spoke to Moses? Hey, Jesus says, that was me. I was the one in the burning bush. He is the God who parted the Red Sea and delivered his people. He is the God who rescued them from Babylon. Jesus is the God revealed in the Old Testament who came in, who stepped into humanity. And Kirk showed us that this last week. But then this week, we're going to wrestle with the idea that Jesus, this God, took on flesh and became fully human. He is fully divine. He is fully human. He took on humanity and lived as a human being in time and space on this earth. And his humanity matters to us. That we must understand a, a person who came who was fully God, fully man, two natures, one person, a mystery. Yet that mystery was necessary for our worship and redemption and salvation. So you start reading the Gospels. And the Gospels are just throwing the tension and the beauty of this truth everywhere you look. Like one of the dangers of reading the Gospels is looking at any story and goes, well, that's Jesus being God. That's Jesus being human. There's a sense in which we see the humanity and the beauty of the divinity in Jesus in every story, but some, you're seeing the beauty of the divine being revealed and the beauty of, but it's still one person who has two distinct natures. And it starts in the book of Luke, right? You start reading Luke, and Luke starts us with a crazy prophecy to an old couple about them having a child who becomes John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And then a sweet little virgin, innocent but not sinless girl who has an angel who says, sweetie, you're going to have a baby. And, and the God of this universe, mystery of mysteries, became a zygote, became an embryo. I, I don't get that. And grew inside of her and became a human being. I mean, was a human being from conception, but became, uh, moved towards birth. That's the right language I should have. And, and then we have Christmas, and this sweet girl goes with her betrothed husband, and the whole world's a mess, but she has a normal delivery. And we sing these songs at Christmas, and some of them are rooted in good theology. Some of them are, 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 are toting the line. Like we sing this line, little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Is that correct? No! Why do we know it's not correct? 
Because human babies cry. I was listening to one guy talk about this. He's like, why is it that all the pictures of Jesus as a baby that you find in like ancient art have this like 30-year-old face on a baby's body with a halo? Like, he was, he was an ordinary human baby. He just, he was born. God was born. I, I don't get that, but that's the story. And then he grows up in this house. His, his earthly dad's a carpenter. His mom is, is a, 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 just a sweet girl. He has brothers and sisters who grow up in the house with him. He is learning to be a carpenter. There's one point in the story where at, when he starts his ministry, the people in his hometown say, isn't that the carpenter's son? Isn't he the carpenter? The dude, like Jesus knew how to wield a tool and work with his hands and build stuff. His trade was carpentry, building stuff. Again, I don't see that in that dude, just so you know, okay? Maybe. That guy up there that, that we saw, that, that, that Jesus looks more like an artist than a carpenter, just, you know. And, and, and he grows up in this home. God went through adolescence. And when he's 12 years old, the only story we have, we wish we had more. The Bible doesn't show, God in his, his wisdom chose to give us what we need for our redemption, not everything we wish we could know. Like I would love to know, did any like, middle school girl have a crush on him? You know, did his voice crack when he was like, trying to talk? You know, did, did the God of this universe have this moment where he was talking and all of a sudden he did one of these, he's like... What we do know is that it was the custom of his parents to take their family every year because he was a Jewish person to the celebration of Passover in Jerusalem. And, and he grew up like, this is part of the beauty of the humanity of Jesus. He grew up as a Jewish person in the first century world. Like, I could spend hours just talking about the convergence of Rome and Israel and what that means to this whole story. We'll save that for another sermon. But he is a Jewish person living under the Roman Empire whose family goes and, and is worshiping the one true living God in a world that is looking to the emperor of Rome as the true God. But he goes to Jerusalem with his family. He celebrates this festival that lasts a week. Then they come home. And you got a picture like, this is kind of like, you know, three or four families going on vacation. The whole town, Jesus lived, like he literally lived in a little bitty hick town at the northern edge of this sea that was fishing and agriculture. It's where he kind of grew up. And, and so Jesus lives in this little bitty hick town. It was a town that was really near another town that just a few years before his birth had an, a, an insurrection and the Romans leveled the city. So he's living under the, the, the shadow of the Roman Empire, destroying and putting everybody who lived in that town on a cross. And this is the world he, he grew up in. But they would go to Jerusalem, they would go celebrate the Passover, and Luke, the last part of Luke chapter 2 tells us the beautiful story of their trip. Uh, they're there, and they celebrate this Hebrew festival that is remembering God's deliverance. So, so, so don't miss the irony. Jesus is in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. He is the one who parted the sea that made the Passover happen. Do you get it? And he is there as a 12-year-old adolescent experiencing the Passover. It's a week-long, like it's a, it's a huge first day, then a week-long party, and then at the end of the week, everybody goes home, and you would travel with your village. So everybody's kind of dry, traveling together, and Mary and Joseph, you know, they probably, you know, you, you, you go home from vacation, and 
you're kind of like, all right, we're going to have a dude's car and a lady's car. And, you know, you kind of drive home like that. And the guys start talking about sports and football and, you know, all the stuff that, that fishing and hunting. And the women talk about, I still, don't, I still don't know the answer to that question, just so you know. I still don't know. But they, they get a day's travel away. And I can picture this moment like vividly in my mind because I've had this with my kids when they were lost for a moment, right? You have this moment where Mary and Joseph catch eyes. You know, they're building a fire and about ready to eat dinner. And Mary looks at Joseph and goes, hey, where's Jesus? And I, I, I'm picturing Joseph going, I thought he was with you. And, and, and now they realize they, they've lost the Son of God. That's that's a pretty good, pretty big matzo ball sin right there, you know? Like, we lost the one the angels sang about. So they go back, they, they get back to Jerusalem. The Bible tells us they looked for him for three days. They had pictures on a milk carton. There was Amber Alerts going out. They can't find him. They find him like, let's go to the temple. And they go into this temple that is this place where God met humanity. The whole Old Testament story is about God meeting humanity. And again, irony of ironies, the one who is the living temple was in the temple built by hands. (laughs) Mary goes, why did you do this to your dad and me? And Jesus' response is so rich and so beautiful. At age 12, he understood his identity. As he goes, didn't you know? I had to be about my father's business. I had to be learning about my father. I had to be in this place. He gets it. And, and, and we're told that he, he then went back home with them and he lived in obedience to his parents. In fact, if you have your Bible, find it. I, I, I kind of went through the whole text that I had listed. I'm just going to read two verses from the first text that will cue this up. But, but Luke chapter 2, verses 51 and 52 Page 950, if you don't have a Bible, grab one. We're going to read this in another text, and I would love for you to be with your nose in the text so you can see what the text of Scripture says. I I don't want you to get your version of Jesus from me. I want you to get it from the Scriptures. But I hope to be a faithful communicator of the truths of the Scripture to you today. And in this text, Luke chapter 2, verses 51 and 52, and he went down with them, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. In other words, we have an obedient child. You know that's a miracle. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. By the way, just a side note, we just studied a whole book by Luke who wrote this text in Acts. One of the things Luke says is that he got his information from eyewitnesses. I am a firm believer that chapter 1 and chapter 2, the source for the entire story is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Part of the reason is because Luke gives us glimpses into her heart, what she's feeling, and the only way Luke can know that is if he heard it from her. And so here, this is probably Mary's story to Luke, but verse 52 says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God at bed. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Herein lies the mystery. Omnipresence lives in Nazareth. 
He had parents, omniscience, went to school and studied and learned. Omnipotence went through puberty. The transcendent God was with us in a middle school boy. The point of this text and all of the gospel stories is that Jesus was a real human being living at a specific point in history and going through all that we as people experience. Truly God, truly man. Full, beautiful, orbed humanity in Jesus. And the gospels are helping us see this. Now, the story of the Old Testament world or the whole old biblical world has a lot of these divine men. This, Jesus is not the only one who has this claim about him. But there's something radical different because every other quote-unquote divine man was a dude who because he then became some kind of ruler ascended to godhood. And, 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 and the, the polytheistic religions of the world, they would just make their king the embodiment of the gods. But this is not, like if you ever hear people say, well, they just borrowed stories. It's actually not true. Because what we have in this story is not the story of a man who became God. We have the story of the great reversal, the God who stepped into flesh and became one of us. He became human, and his humanity matters. Now, now as we read the story, the text keeps, like, the gospels keep showing us all these points that reveal to us the true, beautiful humanity of Jesus. And we've entered the part of our sermon that is time to wake up and get engaged. It is audience participation time. Are you ready? Help me out. What are the, some of the things that the four Gospels, if you're familiar with the four Gospels, some things that happens to or things that Jesus does that reveal the authenticity of his humanity? Help me out. He slept. Oh, he wept. Oh, yeah, he wept. So Jesus has these emotions, the full, beautiful uh, mix of all the emotions. We see him weeping. We see him loving. We see him caring. He ate food. Jesus uh, had, to, had to take in sustenance. He couldn't just walk around vibrating going, I can just fast forever. In fact, when he chose to fast for 40 days and 40 nights, his weakness became a, a very difficult thing. And Satan came at him then, but, but, but he, he had to eat, right? What else? He slept. One of the naps he took us to the back of a boat when there was a storm, right? But Jesus had to sleep. He got exhausted. He got tired. What else? He bled. You cut him, he bled. What else? He died. That's big. Somebody, I heard back. He had conversations with his parents like Yeah. Had real human conversations, interactions. Here's Mary looking at Jesus. He's going, I know who you are. You could do kind of cool magic tricks here. You, you, could, you could keep this party going. Show yourself to be God. And he's like, lady, my time has not come yet. And so what he does, he sneaks in the back room and does what she wishes, wishes, but does it in a way where nobody would know it. Doesn't walk out and go, water, wine. But this all happens in a conversation with his mom who feels the weight of the angels and doesn't quite see Jesus being that guy yet, right? What else? He loved. He loved. 
He prayed. Has a conversation with the Father, right? Anybody else got one? He gets frustrated with his idiot disciples. That's a really good one. I heard one over here. Human emotions, he was tempted. Say that again. He had friends. That's huge. And his friends ditched him when he needed them most. He had anger. You see, that, like if you read the Gospels, there's this constant interaction with this one who at moments you're like, that dude is like speaking to the sea and the sea is listening to his voice. Yet he's asleep in the front of the boat. And, and what we end up is, is this understanding of this man who is God and this God who became a man, fully God, fully man, this, this deep-seated beauty of the identity of Jesus. But once we get there, once we see this in the scriptures, we've actually opened some huge cans of worms theologically. For example, the whole Testament is super clear about how many gods are there. How many gods are there? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you will love the Lord your God with one God. First commandment, no other gods. Now people are looking at Jesus saying, Jesus is God. That, that's a problem. That opens a can of worms. We're going to end up with people who look at him and go, well, there's God the Father. There's kind of Jesus who's kind of like a God, except any form. By the way, this is the Jehovah's Witness problem. Any form of worship of Jesus, if he's not fully God, you are now breaking the first commandment. If you want to side with Jehovah's Witness, let me make this clear. You are violating the first ultimate commandment. You are worshiping something or someone other than the Lord God Almighty. But, but if he's fully God, like, how do we make sense of this? So the first problem is, how can there be Father God and Son God, but one God? And how do we make sense of this? And then we're going to pull in the Holy Spirit as God. And are they just one God who's like, shows up at different times as different people, like different forms? Like, I'm a dad who's also a son, who's also a husband. So I kind of show up in different relationships. And I will tell you that that, that version, that understanding of God, if you've used that illustration, God bless you, Stop. God is not like me, who is a dad, who is a son, who is a husband. That's just one being who shows up in different relationships in different ways. We have clarity that the Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit, yet they are one God and mystery. But to not believe it, you are outside the faith. You have a God who can't save you. Now this, this, Sermon's not about the Trinity. Come back to that some other time. But the second can of worms we have is we have this one guy. We're not saying he has two distinct natures. He is God. He has the nature of humanity. And anybody I know who has two distinct natures in one person is schizophrenic. How do we maintain the beauty of Christ and not end up with him being some weird, bizarre hybrid of something Yet the scriptures are telling us this is, we have one person, the fusion of two humanities, uh, two, two natures, God and man, and one person perfectly brought together 
And it's a mystery. Yet it's there in Scripture, and this is the Jesus who is revealed. And what happens is that if you study it, this is where we get to Athanasius and Arius, just so you know. For the first 500 years after the time of Jesus, the early church keeps having people who come with false views, heresies, saying, this is who I I think Jesus is. And then the church would get in and study the Bible. They would have these bishops and leaders and pastors who would study the Bible and go, nope, that ain't it. And they would have councils where they would come together and they would have discussions and they would talk about it and they would come to a conclusion and create a statement that would help them understand this. And there's a whole progression of these from the Apostles' Creed to the Nicene Creed, so on and so forth. You have all these moments over this period of time where uh, the, the, the church for this four and 500 years are having these discussions trying to get precision in the language of Christianity about the nature of Jesus and the nature of God because they knew it mattered. They knew the wrong Jesus, the wrong God cannot save us. And, and so we get to this Council of Chalcedon, 451 BC, uh, AD, for, uh, about a little over 400 years after the time of Jesus. And this is not the full statement. By the way, every week we, we make a family worship sheet for you. We put it like out in here. But we also publish that sheet on our blog or on our, our online community, Koinonia. And if you'll go find this, it'll post tomorrow morning on our blog or this afternoon on Koinonia. If you'll go find this, I have put the full statement from the Chalcedonian definition, which came out of this council what was happening at the time was you had four or five different people, and I'll explain, I'm going to make it really simple in a minute, who were saying, I think this is what Jesus is, and they were going, that ain't it. I think this is what Jesus is. That ain't it. And they were studying the scriptures, and they said, we're going to come together, and they formed a clear definition. Listen to this part of it. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God, truly man, of a rational soul and body, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us, yet without sin. Coessential with the Father means he has the same essence as the Father. Consubstantial with us means he has the same essence as us. How do we make sense of that? We can't. It's a mystery, yet this was necessary for our salvation. And what happens throughout history is we have a tendency to take Jesus and emphasize his manhood. This happens in our culture. You'll have all these people who are really into Jesus, the example, and, and we'll see the Jesus who loves and cares. And, but then you almost, you'll see people almost denying that he's God. You'll end up with other people who are so into Jesus, Godhood. And so what we end up with is two versions of Jesus. And we end up in church history and in your own lives end up with two different versions of Jesus and we have to avoid these two mistakes. So here's the two mistakes we have a tendency to make. The first mistake is we have, uh, we will come up with a form of Jesus that is really Superman. Superman. We'll, 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 in our minds, we'll say this is really who Jesus is. Now who's Superman? All right, he shows up as Clark Kent, right? And, and, and as we see, mild-mannered reporter, he has glasses. I always found it hilarious that this guy who is flying around saving the world puts on a pair of glasses and everybody's like, I don't recognize you. you know, I, <clears throat> but the truth of the matter is that when he shows up with his glasses on, is he ever really Clark Kent? Is he ever human? It's a simple answer. 
No. He just appears to be. He's really Superman. He's always really Superman. He is Cal-El. He is the, the one from Krypton. He, he never, like, he's ne- he is among us. He's never really one of us. And one of the ditches, if we're not careful, we will end up with a version of Jesus who he's like, we're like, hey, he's kind of like God. He kind of looks like God. He kind of acts like God. I, I, I'm like, man. But the truth of the matter is, he, he isn't really fully one of us. He's just Superman. Now, the other danger is that we'll end up with a Jesus who is a Batman. Now, Batman and Superman, two completely different superheroes. Uh, Superman is never really human. What is Batman? He is just a dude in a really cool suit with really good gadgets. He's just one of us with better stuff. And, and, and if you're not careful, there are all kinds of belief systems. In fact, almost all of the heresies in church history and almost all of the what we would call cults in our day either have a Batman or a Superman Jesus. I'm just letting you know. The Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, they have Jesus who is nothing more than Batman. He's just a created being with a really cool suit who somehow ascended to some place of being some type of God. Uh, the, the, like the Christian scientists have a Superman Jesus. He just appears to be human. He's not really human. He just kind of looks like it, okay? And, and you'll end up in one of these ditches. And what the Bible keeps driving us to is this fully orbed, beautiful understanding of God taking on flesh, all that we are and dwelling with us. That's who Jesus is. Now, you're like, Man, you're up in the clouds. Why does this matter? Well, that's where we need a little bit of Paul this morning before I get off the stage. Need a little Paul. We don't want to end up with Batman Jesus, Superman Jesus. We want to understand Jesus as he truly is. And find in your Bibles Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. And what I'm going to do is we're going to read this text real quick. This is one of these texts that is like deep into the swimming pool text. And I'm just swimming across the surface I was kind of scanning through, and sometimes I like to listen to some sermons as I'm preparing to preach. I don't preach other people's sermons, but it helps me. I'm really auditory learner, so hearing other people preach. And I looked at John Piper. John Piper spent six weeks in these verses, deep into the pool, okay? Yet, there is a simple statement that Paul is making that helps us understand the why. You're like, Okay, Jesus fully God, fully man. I believe that. Why does it matter? And that's what Paul is going to help us with. So find that in your Bible. I'm going to read it. The, 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 the heading, death in Adam, life in Christ. There it is. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. Now, let me just, like, complicated words, let me make them simple. Here's what he's saying. The first guy showed up. His name is Adam. God made him, gave him a simple command, don't eat of the fruit. And Adam made a functional decision with his wife Eve that said, I don't want a God, I want to be God. And he ate the, ate the fruit. He chose to willingly rebel against God, and what happened is that his nature was corrupted and broken, and sin entered the world, and now sin and death reign in the world. And even though the law hadn't been given until Moses came along, so they didn't fully understand all of God's will, 
yet still down in our heart of hearts, we sinned against the Lord, and death and sin rule like a king over our lives. That's what the text is saying so far. And so we have this problem. If sin and death reign in us because we are guilty in Adam and we prove that we are guilty in Adam by doing the same thing Adam did. This is what the argument so far. I am guilty in Adam. He is my representative as a human being. But I know that I'm guilty in Adam because every day I make the same choice Adam did. I don't want a God. I, want to, I, I don't want a God. I want to be God. I want to live my life the way I want to live it, live it. Nobody's telling me what to do. I'm living my life for myself. And we even refashioned Jesus to fit that. Death and sin reign. The king of our lives is death and sin. So what happens? But the free gift is not like the trespass, verse 15. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, there it is, through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man, the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, again, deep into the pool, let's just set it up really simply. What is Paul trying to communicate to us? And here's what he's saying. Death and sin reign in our lives, and there is no hope in our humanity. Now, we say, but couldn't have God just went, forgiven? And the answer is he could have, but not without destroying the perfection of his character. If God looks at our sin and goes, eh, whatever. No big deal. That God is not wholly perfect and righteous. And so, the one true and living God who is perfect in his moral character character cannot look at death and sin reigning and just treat it like it's no big deal. He has to be just. And so the coming of a second man, a second Adam, this is what the text, there's the first Adam who failed the test. And now there's a second Adam who has entered the sphere. A man who is God, but he steps into humanity and every point where Adam failed and you and I have after him Christ passed the test. He is the second Adam. So that all of the human at race falls under one of two human representatives. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ, period. But it took God taking on flesh to get to this. God had to become a man and live the life I should have lived and then die the death in my place for my sin. And so his coming, this text real quick, tells us just a few things about why. The why behind the what. Why did Jesus come and live this life and become human? And the first is this. We see this all through text. He came as my representative. We are under Adam, but now we have a new Adam and he lived as my representative. He kept the law. He, he passed the test where Adam failed and every human after him did not follow the purpose of God. Jesus in his humanity came and perfectly pleased the will of the Father, but he did it as my representative. 
And now I am counted in Christ. He took the test. Somebody, some human being had to step and do what Adam and every other human, fa- human being had failed to do. In fact, this is one of the ways to read the Bible. Every person who shows up in the Old Testament, kind of the question is going, is this the guy who's going to keep the rules? Is this the guy, the woman who's going to keep the law? Is this the... And Every person in the Old Testament is an abject failure, has to have sacrifices in their place. Where is that human? Where is that person? And the gospel writers go, there he is. There he is. He is our representative. Now, I saw a video this week that helped me understand it, so I want to show this to you. This is in a classroom with a sweet little student who is going to stand as the representative for their class. Check it out. Do we have audio with this? All right, back it up, start over again with the audio, please. Because you gotta hear what's going on. If she don't, then we still work it. Harley, Harley, it's up to you. All right, parents, we made a bet. If Harley gets this right, then we can have free time. If she don't, then we still working. Harley, what answer did you write down? Seven. Hey, y'all, that's it. That sweet little girl stood as a representative of her whole class. These are tears of joy. (laughs) That little girl stood as a representative of her whole class. She gets the test right, answer right, we all go to recess. She gets the test wrong, we go, it didn't matter. Like, every other kid in the class, it didn't matter what they had written on their sheet. They are under a head, a, a person who is their representative. And listen, every other person, when they, like, we're unlike that class. Some kids in that class had the right answer on their sheet, too. We don't. Yet we have a representative who stood in our place, Jesus Christ our Lord. Second thing we have, what we learn from this text, what we learn from the story is that Jesus is our substitute. That God chose in his mercy and grace, and this text alludes to the beautiful truth that the free gift of God's grace, the free gift of God's righteousness, the free gift of the gospel came because God stepped into humanity and died a sacrificial substitutionary death in your place. Now we're going to come back to this. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but it's the essence of what happens at Easter in our central story is that Christ, the perfect representative, then gave his life as the perfect sacrifice. His death took the wrath of God for you and for me. He is our sacrifice. Third thing we see is that Jesus is our example. That, that in, in the, the story of Jesus, his perfect life, his humanity gives us a model to follow. Um, we talk about who, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means we're a follower of Jesus. Now, we have, you can't start by saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. 
You have to start with Jesus being your representative and your sacrifice. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, trying to follow him as your, exa- as your example will, will destroy you. It will just add guilt upon guilt. You can't do it. Yet, when I know Christ as my Redeemer, and I have found forgiveness and grace, the free gift of grace, then I can look to Christ and go, what does it look like to live my life with your values, your attitudes, your morals, your ethics, your, 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 your way of seeing the world? First John chapter 2, verses 5 and six, Jesus' best friend in the world, John, wrote this, but whoever uh, keeps, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Listen, you don't become a Christian by walking like Jesus walked, but if you don't start walking like Jesus walked, you may not be a Christian. We're not saved by our works, but we are saved to live a different life, the life of seeing Jesus as our example and modeling our lives off of him. Let me just just give you one quick example. Forgiveness is really hard, really hard. But I read the Gospels and I get to the story of Jesus' crucifixion. And what I see is Jesus' best friends. He had these friends. They mattered to him. He, he spent three plus years just hanging out, camping with them and spending his life with them. And he it in his hour of greatest need. They all ditched him. He died without his friends anywhere near him. I I couldn't forget that. But we get past the resurrection and we have multiple stories of Jesus extending grace. You have somebody in your life you can't forgive. You just can't get past what they did. You can't get past how deeply they hurt you. I understand this is our human experience. But look to Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. He will give you both the strength to do and the model to follow to figure out how to walk that space. He's our example. Last thing we have here is just a beautiful fact that Jesus is our brother. The story here is telling us, like if you read all of Romans, you would see the beauty that God has made us his children. He has put in us a spirit that cries out, Abba, Father to God, the Father in Christ is our older brother. The story leads us to relationship, to know him, to be relational with him, to be intimate with him, to have a relationship. And so I love in Mark chapter 3, verses 34 through 35, he's talking about his disciples, and Jesus literally looks at him and says, I am not ashamed to call you brothers. I got to tell you, I look at that ragtag bunch that ended up what's called disciples. I would be ashamed to call those dudes brothers. But I look at my life and I go, I'd be ashamed to call me brother. And Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. The goal of this is not just some ethereal knowledge. God has come near in the person of Jesus. And he is our representative, he is our sacrifice, he is our model to father, but he is our brother, our friend. He, he is here to be known and wants you to know him and he wants to be intimate with you. So we have to have the right, Je- listen, you have the wrong Jesus, you're gonna end up in a ditch where you don't know the one true and living God and his son, Jesus Christ. But when we get our theology right, our theology should always lead to doxology. Like, what did you just say? Watch it. If I believe right, I'm gonna end up like those kids and I'm gonna be like, woo, yes, Jesus, he's all that matters. I love him, I just can't get over him. I just, like, I can't stop talking. Like, that is our proper response. We're gonna end up hugging our friends, crying, going, oh, Jesus. Jesus got the answer right. That is the, what we saw in that video is the right response when we know the true Jesus. And as the band comes up, we're going to sing. Let's 
sing like people who know the true Jesus this morning. I close with a quote from Augustine, who was one of these first four century guys. What he said about the person and work of Jesus. Listen to this. The maker of man became man that he, ruler of the stars, might be nourished at his mother's breast. That he, the bread, might hunger. That he, the fountain, might thirst. That he, the light, might sleep. That he, the way, might be wearied by the journey. That he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses. That he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to a trial by a mortal judge. That he, justice, might be condemned by the unjust. That he, discipline, might be scourged with whips. That he, the foundation, might be suspended upon a cross. That courage might be weakened. That healer might be wounded. That life might die. Do you know him? Listen, if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, our knowledge of Christ should lead to worship. If you're here today and you're like, I don't know. I don't know that I've met Christ. I want to tell you that there is a God who is here to be your brother, to be your friend. Run to him. During the service, any service, we'll have people over here in the corner who would love to have a conversation with you. We would love to pray with you. Come talk to me about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Don't leave here today without knowing the true Jesus. Lord, I praise you. You are good, and you came to our story for us. You are worthy of all of our adoration and praise this morning. May we lift our voices. May we be excited about your correct answer as that classroom was about that little girl's answer. May we find in you a true representative, our true sacrifice, our true brother. And may we live with the values and ethics when we come to know you that you have, caring for justice, for the poor, for brokenness, because that's how you live your life. May we find you in the Gospels. Lead us, Lord, to read the Scriptures as we head to Easter so we see the true you that we will celebrate a couple Sundays from now in your glory. We love you today. In your name I pray, amen. We're going to stand together. We're going to rejoice and sing to Jesus. As we sing, we will take up an offering. If you are here this morning and you are a guest, this part of the service isn't for you. It is a way for us to express with our finances thanksgiving for all the Lord has done for us, okay? And we're gonna celebrate. But if you'd like to have a conversation or prayer, come find me or come over here. Just come on over to this side of the service and we'll, we have people who are ready to meet with you and pray with you, okay? Let's sing together.